Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Jesus Wept for the fifth Sunday in Lent, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 9th, 2008. In 2005, when my wife and son visited France, they left the beaten tourist track to explore the Paris catacombs. Back in 1786, Monsieur Thérèque de Crosny, Lieutenant General of the Police, and Monsieur Guillemot, Inspector General of the Quarries, converted some Roman limestone quarries into a subterranean cemetery. In nearly 200 miles of dark and dank tunnels, Parisians have meticulously stacked the skeletal remains of upwards of five million people from floor to ceiling in various artistic symmetrical patterns. Graffiti line the long narrow passages in the low ceilings, commenting on the certainty of death and the uncertainty of life. One of which, for example, reads, crazy that you are, why do you promise yourself to live a long time? You who cannot even count on a single day. In an ancient Semitic version of these Paris catacombs, the prophet Ezekiel envisioned the nation of Israel as a wasteland of bones scattered across a desert valley. His famous chapter in Ezekiel 37, lifeless, windswept and eerie, what he calls the great many bones that were very dry, symbolized Israel's exile to pagan Babylon. We read in Ezekiel 37:11, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. In short, Israel felt hopeless. Helpless and hopeless is exactly how Mary and Martha felt when their brother Lazarus died in John chapter 11. And a nagging question added insult to injury. The sisters, their family, and their neighbors were so flummoxed by this question that John repeats it three times in his story. It's the sort of question an ancient Hebrew who had been exiled to Babylon might have asked the priest and prophet Ezekiel. And it's a question that we all ask even today. Couldn't God have prevented this tragedy in the first place? Couldn't God have saved Israel from Babylon? Or couldn't Jesus have healed Lazarus of his sickness like he had healed so many other people before. When her brother Lazarus took sick, Mary asked Jesus for help. But Jesus purposely delayed intervening so that by the time they finally arrive back home in Bethany, 
Lazarus had been dead and buried for at least four days. Lord, Martha cried, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. John eleven twenty one. Mary, her sister, said the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. John eleven thirty two. Amidst all the grief and tears, the neighbors mumbled their own aside. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? John eleven thirty seven. Could he not have prevented all this horrible pain and heartache? Jesus didn't answer their question. Instead, in the shortest verse in the entire Bible, he revealed one of the most important characteristics we can ever learn about the heart of God. We read in John 11:35, Jesus wept. When Jesus experienced the sisters Mary and Martha weeping for their dead brother Lazarus and their distraught neighbors, John writes that he was, quote, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, John 11:33. The God whom we Christians worship is not a remote and aloof sky god somewhere way out there. No, he's a tender God who was deeply moved, even grieved by anything and everything that threatens human well-being. This compassionate and empathetic nature of God is the reason why the scriptures encourage us to bring to him every anguish, confusion, perplexity, and anxiety. When my friend Luke lost a second child in another car accident, I remember at the memorial service how he resonated with the Hebrew scriptures where saints threw dust in the air and cried out in pain. Stoicism is not a Christian virtue. Like Mary, Martha, and their neighbors, the psalmist for this week demonstrates this sort of visceral scream to God. In Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. We can pray to God like this because we know that he weeps when we weep. We place our hope in him because, as the psalmist concludes, he is a God of unfailing love and abundant redemption. Psalm 130, verse 7. God doesn't only empathize with our many pains and sorrows. He also acts Jesus wept with Martha and Mary, and then he raised Lazarus from the dead. His last miracle, by the way, before his own death and resurrection. Of course, human experience tells us that God does not act exactly when, where, and how we think he should act. So we must wait in hope. The psalmist cries out to God with full confidence in his compassionate love, but his poem repeats five times, maybe he's talking to himself, that he must wait. 
he must wait like a sentinel on the night shift who waits for the sun to rise. Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6. And so part of Christian maturity involves learning to wait. We ought to be confident not so much about our chances for a rosy outcome or about exactly where, when, and how God will act, but confident that he will act in his own time, in his own way. We wait in hope even while, like the psalmist, we cry out of the depths to God. The alternative is to lose hope and to spiral into despair, which was the temptation for Ezekiel and the exiles. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We're cut off. Ezekiel 37, 11. However tempting, however human, however understandable, hopeless despair is not a Christian place to live. Winter won't last forever. Spring will come. Lenten darkness, repentance, and sorrow have their rightful place with us. But Easter resurrection is our destiny. However painful our current circumstances, however agonizing our honest questions about the loss of a job, a wayward child, financial disaster, chronic sickness. Ultimately, things will in fact get worse, for nothing can compare to the horrible specter of what the Bible calls the final ultimate enemy that waits us all, which is death. But Christian faith believes that God and Christ will conquer and transform even that ultimate enemy, death. And so, for the time being, in the words of 1 Peter 5, chapter 7, we cast every anxiety upon him because he cares for us. And now for further reflection, consider Paul's words in 2 Timothy 1, chapter 10, that Jesus destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospels. Or Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. For books this week, I review an important new book by Tony Jones about the so-called emergent church. The title of the book is The New Christians, Dispatches from the Emergent Frontier. San Francisco, Josie Bass, 2008, 264 pages. In church not long ago, a friend asked me if I had heard of the movement called Emergent. 
Tony Jones's new book makes answering that question easier than ever. There's been a steadily growing literature by and about emergent churches the last 10 years, some of it friendly and some of it critical. But his book now takes pride of place as the best on-ramp to enter the discussion. As one of Emergent's founders, its national coordinator, the author of numerous previous books, and its leading spokesperson, Tony Jones is at the vortex of all things Emergent. His book is part history of the movement, part theological explanation of its core commitments, part storytelling, and part response to critics. One especially helpful feature of the book is its 20 so-called dispatches that are scattered throughout the text. They crystallize emergent thought and practice. For example, dispatch number 12, emergents embrace the whole Bible the glory and the pathos. In other words, they don't ignore or candy coat hard parts of the story. Or dispatch number 13. Emergents believe that truth, like God, cannot be definitively articulated by finite human beings. Or again, they reject dichotomies between the sacred and the secular, dispatch number six. Or the clergy and the laity, Dispatch number 19. They say, according to dispatch number 16, that they favor a church that functions more like an open source network, less like a hierarchy. Another helpful feature of the book is the four case studies of emergent churches in Kansas City, Missouri, Dallas, Seattle, and Minneapolis. Three appendices round out the dialogue one on emergent village values and practices, another one called a response to our critics, and then a third appendix on why emergent has resisted calls to publish a doctrinal statement that ostensibly would clarify just what they do and don't believe. Although academic scholars have engaged this discussion, one of the most encouraging characteristics of emergent is that in its origins, methods, and intentions, it's a vibrant conversation taking place in the church, by the church, and for the church. Emergence main players are mainly pastors asking pointed and poignant questions about what it means to be and do church. However right or wrong they might be, these are gospel practitioners doing the heavy lifting in God's kingdom. If you want to understand emergent, it's been said, visit one of their churches rather than just read a book. <clears throat> the beginning point for emergent is disillusionment with and deconstruction of all things churchly. They're finished with business as usual. They pose many hard questions. Why did overwhelming percentages of white evangelicals kowtow to George Bush? Why does membership in liberal mainline denominations continue to hemorrhage? Why do people quit church? And why are people who stay in church so bored? 
can churches avoid ecclesial bureaucratism and institutionalization? Is there any way beyond the rancorous debates about gays, ordination of women, politics, the environment, and dogmatic minutiae that have embittered believers everywhere? What would some clean sheet re-engineering of church look like if granted the freedom of innovative theology, structures, and practices? And so, emergents seek nothing less than a new way of practicing Christianity that finds a way out of this mess. Emergent alternatives, which are many and varied, defy simple explanation and categorization. Emergents don't offer cookie-cutter proposals, but rather what Tony Jones describes as, quote, an ethos, a vibe, a sensibility. They value inclusive and vigorous discussion, epistemological humility, theological modesty, and incarnational friendships. Emergents honor gospel mysteries rather than explain them away. They embrace paradox rather than expunge it. They aim for gentle persuasion with personal story rather than the imposition of right answers by gotcha rhetoric. They're obsessed with dialogue because in their view, Jesus was a revolutionary who was predictably unpredictable. The emergent movement is now roughly 10 years old, and a mark of its maturity is Jones's frank acknowledgement of many of its critics and their criticisms. He knows that emergence can sound supremely arrogant, puerile, or like adolescence in rebellion. Admittedly, it's a movement mainly among younger white adults with evangelical backgrounds. Emergent churches tend to have relatively few children or older believers. Or again, isn't it faddish or contrived, even naive, to think that replacing sanctuary pews with sofas will solve the genuine problems that they identify? Or again, inclusive dialogue is better than bitter recriminations, but isn't it coy and disingenuous not to affirm what you believe about, for example, gay ordination or the reality of hell? While it's easy to identify mistakes by our Christian forebears, isn't it off-putting for emergence to insinuate that they alone finally and at long last have the magic? Or won't they just reinvent the wheel? Others have charged that emergent is more smoke than fire, that they're merely angry evangelicals carving out space on the new Christian left. This is a view that gained some credence since Brian McLaren became the board chairman of Jim Wallace's rather conventional Sojourners Call to Renewal organization. Tony Jones raises and engages all these criticisms and more to boot. He acknowledges that the jury is out on the emergent effort to chart a middle course between conservatives and liberals. He admits that some of their creative but tenuous church experiments might not survive. But he goes to the heart of the matter, I think, when he notes what Max Weber called the routinization of the charisma. 
and then writes that the question for emergent Christianity is whether the temptation of routinization can be avoided or whether it's inevitable. A footnote at the end of this sentence adds the perceptive admission that, quote, your purchase of this book may be a sign of the very routinization that emergence would like to avoid. Or I would add, Tony Jones writing the book is an example of the routinization. In other words, as he asks on page 204, can emergence avoid being co-opted by the political and marketing forces of institutional American Christianity? Someone once observed that nothing happens without people, nothing lasts without institutions. Right now, emergent has lots of people, but very few institutions. To take one minor example, it's an easy pot shot for emergents to criticize pastors who obsess about their retirement pension funds, which this book does on at least four different occasions. But as Jones admits, institutionalization is not only inevitable and not in itself bad, it's also necessary. Unless emergents are independently wealthy or take vows of poverty, as they grow older, I'm guessing that they too will worry about paying for teenage orthodontics, college tuition, and yes, their retirement programs. This problem is even more acute because I think Jones is exactly right when he says that the fermenting wine of the gospel expands and explodes its wineskins. The gospel can and ought to destabilize the very institutions that are inevitable, necessary, and good. In his book called Heaven Below, Early Pentecostals in American Culture, the historian Grant Wacker argued that early American Pentecostals succeeded because they, quote, bottled the lightning without stilling the fire or cracking the vessel. The question then arises, can emergent Christianity do something similar? In any case, in the next to the last sentence of his book, Tony Jones predicts that, quote, all attempts to re-domesticate emergence will fail. Only time will tell whether that turns out to be true, and if it does turn out to be true, whether that constitutes emergence defining strength or its glaring weakness. Tony Jones, The New Christians, dispatches from the emergent frontier. For film this week, we've posted a review of a film from 2004, Maria Full of Grace. Maria Alvarez is a spunky 17-year-old who's trapped in a tiny village in Colombia. When her boss threatens her, she quits her job dethorning roses at a plantation. I wondered if these roses were headed to Costco. This, of course, spells economic disaster for her family. So she bags her boyfriend, Juan, who's a loser, 
even though he got her pregnant and wants to marry. Then a friend, quotation marks, advises her that she can make unheard of money as a mule who swallows packets of heroin and delivers them by stomach to New York City. The allure of money and adventure is too much to resist. And so Maria, her, breast, her best friend Blanca, and a seasoned mule named Lucy learn how to swallow 50 to 60 packets of heroin without gagging and then find themselves on the next flight to the Big Apple. We're not surprised when custom agents grill Maria upon landing or that a packet bursts in Lucy's stomach, but these are only the beginnings of very bad outcomes for all three women. The power of this film includes its understated tone and the realization that it's based upon way too many true stories. In Spanish, with English subtitles, Maria, full of grace. And finally, for poetry this week, we continue our series of poems by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. The title of his poem is called The Sinner. Lord, how I am all ague when I seek what I have treasured in my memory. Since, if my soul make even with the weak, each seventh note by right is due to thee, I find there quarries of piled vanities, but shreds of holiness that dare not venture to show their face, since cross to thy decrees. There the circumference earth is, heaven the center. In so much dregs the quintessence is small. The spirit and good extract of my heart comes to about the many hundred part. Yet, Lord, restore thine image, hear my call. And though my hard heart scarce to thee can groan, Remember that thou once didst write on stone. George Herbert, The Sinner. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 9th, 2008, the fifth Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.